Um, this uh, book came out uh, in between uh, these two forums that we've been having, um, and it's uh, my foray uh, as a uh, Christian philosopher who's interested in apologetics generally uh, to say something useful uh, on the historical Jesus. Jesus as Christians uh, understand him, and on uh, giving people uh, the tools and the data to responsibly come to their own uh, view of who Jesus is. Uh, so it's not the kind of apologetic book that sort of tries to browbeat people uh, and uh, assume that by the end of it, everyone now agrees with my position on things. Uh, it's much more an invitation to people to explore for themselves and a sort of a giving of people um, the intellectual responsibility uh, to deal honestly with the evidence uh, that I give them, as it were. This quote uh, that I have up here about the historical quest for Jesus being over and the interdisciplinary quest for the historical Jesus just beginning is kind of my attempt to justify why I, as a non-historian, am going to deal with this obviously very historical uh, issue. Uh, on the one hand, of course, I'm trying to do a lot of reading. I bought an entire IKEA bookshelf uh, full of material and spent about a year researching uh, this book that I try and um, condense down that research for the reader. Um, but I'm coming at this from the point of view of a philosopher, trying to think how can I usefully bring some philosophical framing, some philosophical ideas and techniques uh, to the presentation of this material. Uh, that's just the uh, list of uh, topics, uh, the contents list there. One way in which I frame uh, this book is to talk about spirituality uh, and to talk about what is spirituality, what did Jesus think spirituality was and what role did Jesus himself see himself playing in people's spirituality. Uh, spirituality, of course, is a bit of a sort of cultural buzz term and tends to be very vaguely defined. Um, so I start off by giving a definition of spirituality that I'm going to work with. Um, and this is not uh, uh, unique to me. This was actually inspired uh, by Jesus' answer to the question about the greatest commandment. But I would say a spirituality is, a, broadly speaking, a way of life. It's a broader concept than merely a worldview. Uh, it is your way of relating to reality through your worldview beliefs, your belief about what's real, the, the attitudes of your heart towards that which you believe to be true and false, and then the behavior that organically flows out of that combination of beliefs and attitudes. Um, so we have here spirituality is a way of relating to reality via worldview beliefs, attitudes, actions. You could uh, put that a little bit more memorably perhaps by simply saying it's how you relate to reality through your head and your heart and your hands. Of course Jesus, as I say, was here before me, you know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Drawing of course back to verses like Deuteronomy 6.5. Um, there, of course, Jesus is not only using this structure, but he's beginning to put a specific content into that structure. So now we have a, 
uh, a belief in God, an attitude towards God, a serving of God at the centre of true spirituality. And indeed, Jesus taught that the only way to enter into the life of true spirituality is to, it's through him, through Jesus himself, through trusting him as the divine point of access into God's love and forgiveness and relationship of not only believing that there's a God, but uh, having an effective relationship with and a serving life for uh, God. So verses like um, John 10, 14, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. Um, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, in Matthew 7, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you, uh, and uh, learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. So given that framework, one would of course want to ask, well, why should I trust him on this? That may be a nice idea in theory, but why buy into this? In practice, Um, in apologetics, we're not simply asking people to change their minds about something, to come to a different theoretical opinion on an abstract issue. In apologetics, we're asking people to exchange their non-Christian form of spirituality, whatever that is, for an entirely different way of life that affects every element and component of of who they are, how they relate to themselves, other people, reality, ultimate reality. Uh, It's a big ask. And then in the rest of the book, I basically set out to show that understanding Jesus' spirituality should lead us to understand Jesus by adopting a Jesus-centred spirituality for ourselves. And I, um, I hyphenate understand here. It's a bit of a pun uh, in English, anyway, as the American philosopher Peter Kreft puts it. To understand something is to stand under the authority of the truth to be that which determines what we believe. And indeed, that which determines how we, how we ought to Uh, commit ourselves, our our attitudes, how we ought to behave ourselves. So we stand under the authority of truth and goodness and uh, beauty, uh, which was uh, a whole other subject that we could spend uh, ages talking about, and one close to my heart. Um, But let's skip on to just one more a sort of prior remark before we have a little conversation and then we'll see how far we get through these five different arguments that I put in the book that I think stem from Jesus and the earliest disciples as to the reasons uh, they gave why you should trust Jesus on this whole spirituality thing. That is, I, I talked about giving people the intellectual responsibility to manage their own beliefs as they're reading through the book. And I set up this sort of context where you understand that there's this this spirituality thing that includes your worldview, your basic beliefs about reality. And you have some sort of set of criteria, some rules or standards by which you um, would assemble what data is relevant to making a decision about this issue. And what are are the proper sort of academic standards for, for, for 
for making um, an explanation being a good explanation versus a bad explanation and so on. And then you want to assemble the reliable data. And then you need to sit to ask, well, what is the best explanation of this data? And it's probably relatively more easy to get agreement on choosing the relevant data, what the, what the relevant data actually is, and maybe the rules by which you might interpret that, than it is to get agreement on well, what is the best explanation, primarily, I think, because it's quite difficult to get agreement amongst people on where they're starting from. People don't start from the same spiritual worldview place. So, if I'm giving a a series of five arguments for trusting in Jesus, believing that he really was the Son of God, and so on, someone who um, hears those arguments starting off as an agnostic might be more impacted by that evidence and moved further towards belief in Jesus than someone who thought that that evidence and arguments had exactly the same kind of weight of force but who heard them from an atheistic starting point. And of course someone who believes in there's probably some kind of a God out there I'm just not quite sure what kind of a God he is well, they would take less evidence to convince them uh, of the revelation claim of Christianity than the agnostic or the atheist. So I ask people to be sort of cognizant of, of where they, are they starting? How sceptical, as a philosopher would say, a priori, before you've actually looked at the relevant evidence, are you about the claim that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. And then what changes are made as we go through the argument. Say I give you argument number one, and you think, okay, I think there's some weight to that argument. That, that, that seems to be some evidence that's pushing me towards the Christian view of things, but it's not enough. That argument on its own doesn't convince me that Christianity is true. But what it should do, if you think it has some weight to it, is it could, it's like a sponge kind of soaking up some of the scepticism that you had when you first heard the argument. Now, of course, when I give you argument number two, you're slightly less sceptical about the Christian understanding of Jesus than you were before you heard argument number one. Now, by the time I've done this five times in a row and you've tried to sort of take into account the the cumulative force of of the fact that all of this evidence from different fields is all pointing in the same direction, maybe the reader, I hope the reader, will have gone over the 50-50 line, as it were, with respect to their understanding of Jesus. So just to illustrate this a bit more concretely, If we have these categories of the the worldview people start with, uh, the criteria they're going to assess evidence by, what the actual evidence is, and then arriving at an explanation, we'd say, okay, if you start out as a fairly convinced atheist, your criteria might include, quite plausibly, a criteria like, well, 
There's no point in ever trying to explain anything as a miracle. After all, miracles just couldn't happen because there's no God to work them. So miracles is, is kind of right out. Uh, and we look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and you might say something like, well, okay, it's, it's pretty hard to understand what really went on there, but it, must, it can't have been a miracle because that would imply there's a God and I'm, I'm really pretty certain there isn't. This may be puzzling, but there must have been some sort of deceit or delusion or combination of deceit and delusion of some kind, even if I can't actually sort of produce an alternative naturalistic explanation. But if you start out as some kind of a theist, well, of course you have to be open to miracles. As Anthony Flew said, when he converted from atheism to belief in a God, a creator God, nothing except the, the, the literally, logically impossible is ruled out to omnipotence and I have to take the Christian revelation claim seriously and indeed Anthony Flew said Christianity is the revelation claim to beat because Jesus the claim about Jesus is a unique claim in the world religions and the evidence for the resurrection is the best evidence for a miracle claim that there is and so he says if you start out with some kind of a belief in God an argument to the resurrection conclusion will be much more powerful to you because, as it were, all of the weight of the, the evidence and how you explain it goes into justifying the resurrection hypothesis rather than any of that weight having to go into moving you from atheism to theism. And you can kind of see how that would, would work out if you were somewhere in the middle, as it were. So here's a sort of idealised graph, if you were, if you like, take this with a pinch of salt. Um, but here are um, uh, our yellow line, someone who starts off believing in some kind of a god. And they would say, okay, I don't believe, I'm not over the 0.5 probability with respect to the Christian understanding of Jesus, but I'm pretty open to that being true, because I do believe there is some kind of god who could reveal himself. And uh, maybe I think Christianity is the most plausible revelation claim on the table but I need some convincing. And below here in the purple with the squares, we have a, someone who starts out as an agnostic. And down here, we have a pretty convinced atheist. They don't completely rule out revelation. They're not saying it's absolutely impossible, which would be someone who says zero. But they're, they're pretty darn sure that it's wrong. And yet, and here, of course, they all happen to agree that each argument moves them exactly the same amount, which wouldn't be true in real life. Um, different people will make different assessments of how strong these arguments are. And by the time we've gone through wave one, two, three, four, five, you see, well, maybe our, our, our really firm atheist has moved to agnosticism about Jesus by the end. And maybe that will you know, open them up much more to future experiences and things that might tip them over. And so I'm just trying to sort of move people along as it were, in Greg's wonderful phrase, uh, to put a stone in their shoe, give them something to think about that might propel them in a certain direction. So I'm making a cumulative case here, and the five ways, which is a, a sort of nice parallel to the fact that Thomas Aquinas 
famously gave five arguments for the existence of God called the five ways. And so I've divided up these arguments for the Christian understanding of Jesus into five, somewhat arbitrarily, um, but not particularly arbitrarily. Uh, These arguments have to do with Jesus' self-image, Jesus' miracles in general, Jesus' resurrection as the capstone miracle in particular, Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and contemporary religious experience, uh, which moves the argument from we're looking at all of this sort of historical stuff about something that happened 2,000 years ago to um, Jesus' claim to be a living reality in people's lives here and now. Um, The spirituality of following Jesus isn't just about adopting a 2,000-year-old philosophy or something. Christians claim it's about entering into a relationship with someone who is actually involved in the world here and now. So that's why I try and kind of leave the arguments up to that religious experience point. So anything anyone wants to ask me about that sort of framing and an approach about cumulative case arguments uh, and so on, points of clarification or uh, what have you, please do. And if not, we'll move on to the next little topic. Yes, sir. You just put that one quote back on the screen. Understanding Jesus' spirituality should lead us to understand Jesus was quite a second, third form. Sorry, thanks. Where? Flicking back through. That one? Yeah, that one. There we go. Just one more minute. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so I then move on to talking about the, the sources of information, historically speaking, for knowing about Jesus. Uh, and I adopt a sort of three-tiered approach to the question of the historical reliability of the Gospels, the New Testament uh, in general. Click, 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 click. And those levels are talking about intuitive trust, talking about establishing general reliability, uh, judged by standard historical criteria, and talking about establishing particular reliability, again, judged by standard so-called criteria of authenticity. Let me say a little bit about each of those. When we read a document or hear someone say something, we read a newspaper or um, hear someone tell us it's raining outside or so on, it's a very natural part of our sort of normal way of functioning as humans to come to believe that, that, that trusting what people say is kind of the default position and being um, sceptical of what people say is kind of parasitic, as it were, upon trust. And if this weren't the case, as philosophers like um, uh, Thomas Reed uh, in the Enlightenment pointed out, we would be in very deep difficulty about huge swathes of our human knowledge. 
um, you know, how do we learn um, our alphabet or our times table or um, not by sort of saying, well, I'm not going to believe what teacher's telling me until I've got some good independent evidence that they're really telling me the truth about this. That's not where we start out as, as human knowers. Um, so there's a sense in which trusting something is fundamental. Of course, that can go hand in hand with kind of having our eyes and ears open for indications of unreliability. Um, so when the car salesman is telling us about the car, we're, of course, making assessments based upon all sorts of things, his particular tone of voice, his body language, how he's dressed, um, etc. But in the absence of evidence for thinking he's a shyster, we continue with our sort of default mode of trusting. And it can be like that. this with texts. Um, John Warwick Montgomery, I think, summarising Aristotle on this, uh, has a phrase about um, the, uh, the assumption of truth lying with the text rather than being abrogated by the textual critic themselves. And so I spend a little time looking at the, into the uh, recent work in philosophy in theory of knowledge, epistemology, how we know stuff, about trust and knowing things intuitively and looking at some of the um, testimony from um, textual um, critics and so on, looking at, um, in particular I look at um, C.S. Lewis, uh, who criticised um, 19th century uh, theologians who said you know, the Gospels are just works of mythology and so on and sort of said well these guys are professional theologians but how many myths have they read now I'm someone who's an expert in old pagan stories and medieval literature and mythology and so on um, and the Gospels just don't read that way to me they just don't come across as mythic or J.B. Phillips uh, an Anglican clergyman who spent um, years and years and years and years of his life translating the entire New Testament on his own into English. You can still get it today, the J.B. Phillips uh, New Testament. Um, he just gives his testimony that in, in this long engagement of translating the New Testament, it, it never struck him as sort of mythological and outlandishly magical and so on, but of carrying this, what he called the ring of truth with it. And he said, you know, as, a, as someone who's also worked as a vicar and so on, you come to get this sense of when people are trying to pull the wool over your eyes and, you know, get the reference for you for that job uh, and, and so on. And the alarm bells, those sort of intuitive alarm bells, never went off for him in that process of very close engagement uh, with the text. And that, of course, um, we should abrogate our judgment of things quite reasonably um, to those who are more expert on the matter than we are in the absence of any particular reason uh, to overturn those judgments and so on. So that's a sort of philosophical approach that's not often mentioned in works of historical apologetics. Usually you jump straight into level two here, talking about establishing the general historical reliability of the texts by asking all the, the, the normal questions like um, who probably wrote it, how close to the 
the reported events were they? How long after the events were they writing it? Um, how long after they wrote it do we have our earliest copies of the text? How many different copies of the text from how many different geographical regions do we have to allow us to do textual criticism to work out reliably what the original text probably was? And so on. And of course I go into asking those questions and showing with some knife graphs um, that the New Testament by far outstrips pretty much everything else in ancient literature on all of the criteria. And then I move into this area of particular reliability where you can say even bracketing that previous discussions even if you weren't convinced that the the Gospels, say, are at least to be treated as generally historically reliable reports of what happened in reality, even if you think they're full of mistakes and mythological elements and so on, nevertheless, I might be able to convince you that they accurately report particular bits of information if I can sort of pick out or, or winnow those specks of gold amongst the presumed dross with some, again, standard historical criteria of authenticity. And by this, scholars mean things like um, the criteria of embarrassment. People don't tend to tell stories that put themselves in a bad light. So if, in the New Testament, uh, you find stories about the disciples that put them in a very bad light, these are the the leading uh, early pillars of the church... Um, and yet here are their church's documents telling stories that put them in a bad light. So Peter denying Christ. The disciples all running off whilst it's really the women who stay around in Jerusalem. Uh, Things like this. You might think, well, those stories are likely to be accurate even if they're surrounded by lots of inaccurate stuff because it meets this criteria uh, of embarrassment in this case another particularly important criteria is multiple independent witness to something independent attestation if we've got literary uh, independent sources all of which make the same claim that's much more likely to be uh, reliable than if you only have one witness making the claim to you just as in any court of law, you know, as long as there was uh, no provable um, uh, sort of um, conspiracy amongst the witnesses, if they're independent witnesses, and they all tell you, yeah, we saw this guy with the shaggy beard in the, in the car lot just before the robbery happened, you might think, oh, there probably was a guy with a shaggy beard in the car lot before the robbery happened. And if the guy in the dock happens to have a big shaggy beard you might be a little bit more suspicious about him than you were before, you know. So we look at these, and of course I argue that on, on, on each of these levels, we've got good reason to treat the New Testament as giving us good, uh, at least good enough information that we, can, that we can build arguments to the best explanation of who Jesus was on the basis of the data that we can, we can get from these sources. So, any questions on this area? I was just thinking, I particularly like the approach that you're taking because it does not trade on any conviction one has to have about inspiration Mm. or the divine uh, authorship of the text at all. It just draws on these documents as historically 
reliable in the broad scope, basically. Yes, that's right. So the, the, the point here from Greg is I'm not treating the New Testament text here as inspired. Although I personally believe it is, I'm not asking the reader to accept that theological belief about the text. I'm not asking the reader to buy into this is the revealed word of God and therefore what it says is must be true and reliable and it says Jesus is the son of God and therefore he, he is. Um, because of course why would they accept this theological belief about the inspiration of scriptures? Well, indeed why do I accept this theological belief? Isn't it really because I have a certain belief about who Jesus was and what he claimed and his claims to uh, reveal God and that his, the Holy Spirit would come and would uh, lead his disciples into all truth and that he would um, ensure uh, that his teachings spread around the world in his church under the guidance of his apostles and the Holy Spirit whom he sent and so on. Uh, I actually sort of, the, the belief in the inspiration of scripture is uh, one of the beliefs that you arrive at sort of late in the, the train of thinking about Christianity rather than it being at the centre. It's Christ at the centre, as it were, and then you would work your way to your theological beliefs about the nature of the revelation going on in the Bible. Um, but you don't need to get into that discussion at all in order to treat them just as, well, here are some first-century documents that claim certain things, just like the first-century histories of, of Tacitus or Josephus or what have you. Um, and let's proceed from there. Yeah. Anything else? We shall move on to the first way, in that case. Jesus' self-identity. Those of you who were here at my lecture on C.S. Lewis yesterday will have got a, a dose of this uh, already. Sometimes called the lunatic liar lord argument. It, most people immediately think of um, either C.S. Lewis or Josh McDowell on hearing this argument, but it has a long intellectual history. Um, this is a, a Scotsman, Professor John Duncan, from the 18th to 19th century, and he said this, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, this need to choose between one of these three possible explanations of who Jesus was, given, of course, that he made certain historical claims about himself, the claims to be things like the Son of God, the, the Son of Man incarnate, to have the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins, to um, be in command of the angels, to be Lord of the Sabbath, etc., etc., etc. I spend a chapter in the, in the book looking over um, the evidence for Jesus' self-understanding. Uh, Lewis uh, famously rephrased the argument, which again he got through reading G.K. Chesterton, um, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He phrases it as a lot of people like Jefferson famously said, you know, um, 
Uh, Jesus may not have been divine, but his morality was divine. Uh, and uh, together with a, an atheist like Christopher Hitchens, who's taught somewhat about this, and Lewis's argument here, uh, Hitchens actually agrees that Lewis is, is right on the logic and the morality of the situation here. Hitchens said that if, if Jesus' claims were not fed by the force of divine revelation, they were wicked. But of course, a lot of people today would call into question the, the starting assumption of that lunatic liar lord argument and would say something like, but the, the claim that he made these, these high Christological claims for himself is just a myth, just a later development. That came later. The, his disciples misunderstood him. The church foisted this upon him. Um, here is a, a quote from the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, who's popularised this kind of a view. Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the Son of God, asked another character. Right, Professor T. Bing said. Jesus' establishment of the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on at the Council of Nicaea which happened in 325 AD. It's poppycock, of course. As we said, it's poppycock. But um, culturally influential poppycock. Uh, as Mark Mittelberg from America says, the common claim today is that belief in Jesus as the divine person arose long after he walked the earth. Such books as the Da Vinci Code have popularised the notion. It wasn't until the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, three centuries after Christ, that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God. But of course, he's right when he says, as this turns out, the best historical scholarship shows that that's simply not the case. And again, here I I take sort of two uh, mutually reinforcing roots. You can look at indirect evidence, what other people believed about Jesus. And the earlier that indirect evidence is, the question becomes, well, why did they believe that about Jesus? And if they're, the closer they are, the better position they are to know what he really claimed about himself, would they have believed that unless he did something that encouraged them to believe it? Could they, who were closer to him than we are, have so radically misunderstood him? And then, of course, more directly, the direct evidence about Jesus' explicit and implicit claims about himself. And, you know, start off the book with the story of uh, the martyrdom of Ignatius of Antioch, uh, reportedly uh, torn to shreds by lions in the Roman arena in 108 AD. Uh, reported by a church historian Eusebius, a disciple of John the Apostle, and also reportedly appointed bishop uh, of uh, uh, Antioch by... St. Peter. You can look at uh, what I think it was Polycarp talked about, the living and abiding voice. If you have here the sort of the eyewitness generation to Jesus and his earliest disciples like Peter and John, and then we have the, the first generation of believers who were not eyewitnesses. So here we have Ignatius, and he puts his trust in Christ and is willing to be martyred for his trust in Christ, believing that he will be raised from the dead like Christ was on the basis of the living and abiding voice of people like John and Peter, whom he knew personally, whom had known Jesus personally. 
and this guy's willing to risk his life on the basis of this uh, information. There's a few quotes from Ignatius, his letter to the Trallians. He um, encourages them about Jesus Christ who died for us that you might escape death through faith in his death. And he entreats them to ignore the docetic denial of Jesus' humanity. This was the early 2nd century, uh, century spiritual temptation, was to treat Jesus as divine, but not really human. <laughs> he says, turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ, who was of David's line, born of Mary, who was truly born, ate and drank, truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly crucified and died, who also was truly raised from the dead, our Father having raised him, who in like manner will raise us who believe in him. It's very creedal, this information from Ignatius. So as Dean L. Overman puts it in his uh, very good book, A Case for the Divinity of Jesus, the earliest literary sources in our possession that we know for certain were written within decades of Jesus' death, contained devotional creeds and hymns and liturgical formulae that pre-existed these literary sources, written within decades, and were then incorporated into them. And they present compelling evidence of a pattern of worship of Jesus of Nazareth as a resurrected divine being, dated from a time almost contemporaneous with the events they describe. We have solid historical evidence that persons who were alive and presumably eyewitnesses to Jesus' life worshipped him as divine within an astonishingly short time frame from the crucifixion. And he concludes, the devotional practices of the primitive church, for which there's substantial evidence, clearly demonstrates that Jesus was worshipped as divine right from the beginning of the Christian movement. Now, as Craig A. Evans puts it, to assert that Jesus did not regard himself as in some sense God's son makes the historian wonder why others did from such an early and close perspective. From the earliest time, Jesus was regarded by Christians as the son of God. Why not regard him as the great prophet if that was all he claimed or accepted for himself? Why not regard him as the great teacher if that had been all that he'd ever pretended to be? Particularly if you're a monotheistic Jew brought up under the persecution of the polytheistic, pagan, synchronistic Roman oppressor and your whole religio-socio-political outlook is tied into your fierce monotheistic belief system. Earliest Christianity regarded Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, I think, says Craig Evans, because that's how his disciples understood him and how Jesus permitted them to understand him. That makes the best sense of the indirect evidence. His agnostic philosopher from the UK, uh, Anthony O'Hare, an agnostic thinker, he says, we should remember that his first followers, Jesus' first followers, were pious Jews to whom the claims being made would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given strong reason to believe them and were better than from Jesus himself. Indeed, you might say that the trilemma... But, yep, you just want to... It's a 
barnstorming quote, isn't it? I, I like as much as possible in apologetics to quote from non-believers because then people can't say, oh, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They're biased. <laughs> you know, whatever their professional credentials are, um, sometimes with an audience it, 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 it makes a, a stronger rhetorical point to quote from um, an atheist who's not a historian <laughs> than from a historian who's a Christian just because of that issue. Um, it's probably good to have a mixture of both types. Are we? Okay. So Peter Kreef points out quite cannily, I think, that this sort of trilemma, lunatic liar lord, you could apply that to the disciples. If Jesus didn't make these claims, someone made them on his behalf. Now, did they make them on his behalf because they were in some sense deluded, lying? Or because they were right that he made those claims. Um, what did they get out of making these claims? Uh, as Kreef puts it, uh, you know, um, what did they get out of this elaborate blasphemous hoax, if that's what it was? Um, hmm. Their social standing, their possessions, their political privileges were stolen from them. They were persecuted, imprisoned, whipped, tortured, exiled, crucified, eaten by lions like Ignatius, and cut to pieces by gladiators. It's a good list of perks <laughs> for issuing. And it, was, it would have been pretty obvious in the social circumstances that, that that was what would be coming your way, whether from Rome or from your fellow Jews, if you make that kind of claim in that kind of context, surely. So as John Riss puts it, um, the full range of Christian claims he came to think, must go back to the very earliest followers of Jesus and in all probability to Jesus himself. I could no longer delude myself that real scholarship told us that we have no evidence that Jesus and the earliest generation of followers claimed divinity. Then you can look at the direct evidence, of course, very, very important. Um, this is probably the earliest pictorial uh, painting representation of Jesus that we currently have. It dates from 235 AD. And remember, the Council of Nicaea was in 325 AD, a hundred years after this painting. Okay? Now, what does this painting show? It's a bit blurry up here, but you might just about be able to make out if I use my laser point here. We have a, a figure standing with an arm outstretched over a man lying prone on some sort of bed. And next to this, we have a man carrying his bed. In the biblical story that comes to mind, particularly since we know that this painting was from a house church uh, in uh, Dura Europus in modern-day Syria. It's the healing of the paralytic. I think it's the story from, here we have it from Mark, that is of course primarily important because Jesus had claimed to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. And everyone, the Pharisees had grumbled, who can do that but God alone? That's blasphemous, that claim. And Jesus says, oh well, which is easier, to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Of course it's a you know, big claim, but it's uh, empirically undecidable here and now. Or to say to a paralytic, take up your bed and walk. Very empirically testable here and now. 
so that, so that you may know that the Son of God hath authority on earth, etc. Pick up your bed and walk. So here, a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea, we have a depiction from a house church of a story connected with Jesus claiming divinity. Are we 100% sure that it is Jesus, a picture of Jesus? Uh, yes, if you, it's from a baptismal, uh, it's from the baptistry of the church, and you can, uh, thank you, I'm going to remind you to repeat the question, is it 100% sure that this is a picture of Jesus? And I'm saying, uh, yes it is from the context, there are a number of other pictures that, that come alongside it, um, a picture of Jesus walking on the water, for example, with the, the disciples in the boat, Jesus walking on the water. Above the baptistry, Jesus is the good shepherd. Um, and this is between those two. I think it's very clear from the, from the context where it's found uh, and the particular nature of the, the room that it's found in. Um, that it's to do with the forgiveness of sins, the baptism, baptistry, Jesus walking on the water, uh, which again you can see is an enacted claim to divinity, interestingly enough, um, and so on. Yeah, there's there's a few that I, I they're fairly easily available online. Okay. The thing to Google would be um, uh, Dura Europos, a D U R A dash E U R O P O S yeah. House Church, and the dating. Um, of course, you know all historical dating is slight, particularly in archaeology, give or take. Um, but I've been told 235-ish AD. Dura Europos. This is where the criteria of intuitive trust should come into play. Right? <laughs> yes. In your sources. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But of course, also you can get my... Uh, I don't think I mentioned this in the book because I found it uh, later. But lots of the things that I'm talking about, I, I, I love to footnote. Um, so I, I love to reference all of this, all of this material and give links where people can go and see things online and I published a paper on archaeology and the New Testament, a sort of appendix to this book an online appendix at the um, bethinking.org website looking at examples of New Testament archaeology um, which you can look up as well if you like well just one direct example from Jesus' life reported in the Gospels, Jesus at the trial where you know if you wanted to avoid getting killed it's quite a big motivation for most people. Um, and there was an opportunity for a bit of theological subtlety to avoid that. Um, you wouldn't do what Jesus did, which is basically put his foot right in it very deliberately. Um, you know, the high priest, having got a bit frustrated with the attempts of the conflicting witnesses and so on to convict Jesus of something, beginning to pull his hair out at this point, sort of in desperation, turns around, let's see if I can trap the accused himself. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Squelch. I'm right in it now. And the high priest tears his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you all think? And they unanimously condemn him. It's worthy of death. Because, of course, they know. 
knowing their Old Testament, Jesus is drawing on Daniel 7 here. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. A a typical uh, Jewish image of the glory of God, the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was led into his presence, given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. You can only worship God. You can't even worship an angel of God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. My kingdom is not of this world. So it would seem that the, the evidence that we have, the earliest reliable evidence that we have, is replete with claims from the mouth of Jesus that put him far above any mere prophet or teacher. Um, the Son of Man is master even of the Sabbath. Who establishes the Sabbath but God? The Son of Man will send out his angels who owns angels I don't own any you know, it would be pretty cool but I don't to uproot from the kingdom everything that's spoiling it etc so as various people could conclude uh, a high Christology goes right back to Jesus himself and you really do have to grapple with the lunatic liar lord trilemma What's the best explanation? You have logically limited explanatory categories here, as it were, and you can you know, just nicely diagram it and say to the extent that he claimed divinity, that claim's either true or false. So we've got to be one or the other. If it's true, of course, it's Lord. If it's false, then either Jesus didn't know that it was false or he did know it was false. And if he didn't know, he's really out of touch with reality if you take um, the distance between your self image and the reality of who you are as a good index of your sanity can you think of a broader gap between your self image and what you really are than the gap between creator and created and if he knew that he was issuing a claim that wasn't false that wasn't true, sorry. Um, then, of course, he's, he's lying, he's blaspheming, he is a con artist. To the extent that you think the rest of all of the available evidence about Jesus' character and words and deeds mitigate against these two options, so to that extent you will be more favourably disposed to this option. Now, I think it's quite a strong argument. You would have to get more familiar as the reader wills the book goes on with Jesus's words and deeds from the rest of the the data that's a very important component of the argument but I think it puts a big stone in the shoe as it were and it's something that might make you think well there's some weight to that I'm really intrigued by this Jesus fellow now Um, maybe it's not going to take a huge amount more evidence to convince me maybe I need some more Maybe I don't. I leave that to the reader to make their own mind up uh, on, as it were. (laughs) Richard Dawkins' attempt to deal with this argument uh, is a wonderful way of throwing into relief how strong an argument it is, as it were. Um, Asked by a journalist about uh, some of C.S. Lewis's work, 
Um, Dawkins says this, after disparaging Lewis as a mere professor of English, uh, he says, uh, when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. Okay, here's the pathetic argument. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. Didn't seem to occur to him, to Lewis, that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. So Richard Dawkins has, has had the insight to see that there's, a, there's another option here. We don't have to choose between lunatic or liar or lord. It's lunatic or liar or lord or just sincerely and honestly mistaken. Now, sometimes I sincerely and honestly think I've left the keys in one jacket when it's actually in the other one. People make mistakes. We do, don't we? That's true. Jesus had just sincerely and honestly come to the conclusion that he was God and sinless and had the authority to forgive sins and send God's angels out on missions and that he'd come again and judge uh, the Sanhedrin. Um, but hey, we all make mistakes, don't we? <laughs> This, this is the best get-out clause Dawkins can think of. Doesn't that throw into relief the, the logic of the argument? Um, Mike King puts it, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But why should Dawkins and Al not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as either mad or bad? Why not go for one of those two options? Why, why grasp at this alternative straw? Because those two options are not easy to grasp. And they're implicitly admitting that by having to invent some other option, as flimsy as that is. Nicky Gumbel of the Alpha Course, great wit, he says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe in God. But Jesus was not deluded even though he thought he was God. (laughs) That just doesn't square. So let's pause there for uh, questions on the first way, the lunatic liar lord argument. Yes, sir. Sir, please, um, may I know when we look at the, the life of Christ or the crucifixion, when he was hanged, was he covered or uh, he was naked? Right, okay. The, uh, the question, I think, is when Jesus was crucified, was he covered, or at least his private parts covered, as is often depicted in works of art, Or was he naked? Um, As far as I know, he would have been naked. Um, It is the sensibilities of uh, Renaissance art and so on uh, that covers up. And even you can see in Renaissance art, you can look at older paintings of, say, Adam and Eve in the garden. And you will find more modern fig leaves literally painted over the older paintings. Uh, to preserve the, the modesty of the viewer. Yeah. Just a point on that. I, I was actually at the Sistine Chapel not long ago, and the original paintings were nude. And after, I'm going to get Michelangelo to 
yeah. or mixed up, whoever it was, did his original work. They mm. sent him artists and with another pope and covered up the genitals because right. of that Renaissance yeah. sensibilities that you're speaking of. Uh, uh, it strikes, it's almost like, like a ridiculous response. Yeah, yeah, like so. Yeah, yes, defacing this great work of art. Uh, yeah, a point about the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, it said a, a later pope, pope imported another artist to put fig leaves and bits, wisps of clothing and so on uh, over the, the genitals of the figures that were originally uh, naked in the Sistine Chapel, kind of uh, graffiti over that, please. You know. um, yeah, yes. Mm. Why would they put it as a point of influence? Right, so, okay, I, I'll try and phrase it and correct me if I've got mis- misheard. I think the question was about when the atheists are looking at Jesus and considering uh, about the sort of, well, is he mad? Um, the relevance of Jesus' intelligence that comes across in, in the text to their judgment here. Do they think of Jesus as someone who's intelligent or not, and how does that sort of feed into assessing this argument? So, yeah. Um, Richard Dawkins once uh, wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus, uh, in which he has some nice things to say about Jesus. Um, But it's all on the moral level. It's like, Jesus was one of the first people to publicly advocate being nice to other people. Um... I don't think that's actually necessarily true. Um, but, you know, he says something nice about Jesus. So he views Jesus as a nice moral teacher in that sense. So you can see why he doesn't go for the, for the, for the liar kind of uh, option here. Because he does think that Jesus' moral teaching is perfectly good, decent moral teaching that, that's actually um, maybe a bit behind the times now. But was certainly far ahead of its time in the past. Um, because, of course, Dawkins' view about morality is it's just this changing social zeitgeist and uh, basically what's new is better. Um, so um, he sees Jesus as a moral teacher far ahead of his time. Um, but he doesn't say anything nice about his intelligence. Uh, I don't see New Atheist discussions of, say, Jesus' interactions with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Mark's Gospel as they're trying to... to to manoeuvre him and trap him in his own words and the, the brilliant dialectical way in which Jesus deals with their supposed hard questions. You know, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? Ah ha ha, we've got him now. You know? Or uh, uh, what about, you know, if you believe in the resurrection of the dead, what about, we could tell the story of a man who's, a uh, woman who, who has to be married to this whole succession of brothers and when she's resurrected, you know, whose wife is she? Or are you going to endorse polygamy? Ha ha ha, we've got you now. Jesus is brilliant at um, not wriggling out of the questions, but at turning them back on the question in a way that reveals the motives of their hearts, uh, at using uh, logic to point out the mistakes in their arguments, the mistaken assumption that their argument uh, is working from, uh, critiques their presuppositions and so on. Uh, he clearly comes across there as, as a clever chap. 
Um, and that has to figure into your assessment of Jesus. You know, he's not just a nice moral teacher floating around in a nighty, um, <laughs> as is depicted in lots of Victorian twee art and so on. Um, this was someone who could go toe-to-toe uh, with the intellects of his culture as well. Okay, so let's uh, briefly look at Jesus' miracles, the second way. Um, with J.P. Morland and William Lane Craig here, where they basically point out, if you believe in a God who created the whole universe, it's not really a stretch to believe that there could be miracles. Um, as Anthony Flew put it when he converted, nothing is restricted to omnipotence except the logically impossible. So, fine. Um, I'm never going to come across... I'm never going to stub my toe against a ball that's square. Uh, And God couldn't create a square ball. Because there's no such thing as creating a square ball. That's just an incoherent concept. Um, But God could, if he so chose, create a unicorn. There's nothing logically self-contradictory about the notion of a horse-like creature that's got a a horn on its head, a bit like a narwhal. Um, There just don't happen to be any such things. God hasn't created any such things, so far as we know. But he's perfectly... um, you know, within his rights and ability so to do. And so the question, uh, given a miracle claim, uh, given that you believe in a God, really has to focus on um, what's the evidence that it really did happen. I'm not just going to gullibly believe every miracle claim that, that comes. I'm going to at least do things like assessing subconsciously the, the character of the witness, their intuitive uh, reliability and so on. And maybe, given that they're making... Um, claims that fly in the face of uh, experience and so on. You might want to get into the issue of do you need uh, do you need additional extra evidence for something that's out of the ordinary? I'm not very happy with this claim that you hear all the time from sceptics of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. At the very least, I don't think that's a very useful way of framing the issue. I, ra- I would rather say something like Believing in a miracle is going to take sufficient evidence. And then have a conversation about, well, what evidence would be sufficient? If it turns out in that conversation that no amount of evidence would ever be sufficient to establish a miracle, well, then clearly their problem with miracles is not evidential. It's to do with their philosophical presuppositions. It's probably to do with something about, do they believe there even is a God who could work miracles? Um, Or that if there was a God, um, he ought to refrain from ever working miracles. They have some sort of deistic view of God and so on. So here again is an instance where there's this interplay in in the discussion between people's philosophical assumptions and what they will make of explaining the relevant evidence that we've uh, established. Jesus himself appeals to the evidence of his miracles. He says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Perhaps an appeal to that sort of intuitive level of trust. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So Jesus appeals to the evidence of his miracles. And you can treat these as an illuminating and indeed exceedingly well-attested category of Jesus's deeds we can also look at things like his table fellowship with tax collectors and prostitutes and what that says about his vision of himself and so on but the miracles 
And they're this category of deeds that they simultaneously express Jesus' self-understanding and provide independent validation of his self-understanding. So the miracles sharpen the lunatic liar lord argument by giving us even more information about Jesus' character and self-understanding because they express his self-understanding as God's agent and the son of man and so on and they're good so how does that square with him being a, a lying blasphemer and so on and they're also deeds that give an independent sort of a seal of approval from God that Jesus is telling the truth And as I mentioned a little earlier, in the light of the Old Testament background, and we don't have time to look up all the verses and so on, I hope I've put some of them down on the outline there for you. Various of Jesus' miracles, at least, miracles like calming the storm, or feeding the 5,000, or walking on the water, are very open to interpretation as sort of enacted uh, parables, if you like, that give, give a claim to... Jesus' self-understanding as the Son of God and the revelation of God. Here's a particularly interesting one, I think. This is Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist looking a little bit fey. Um, The early Q tradition, and and here I haven't mentioned about the different um, sources that that lie behind the Gospels as we have them in the New Testament, but Q is material often thought to predate Mark that is then incorporated into Mark. So it's even earlier than Mark, which is the earliest Gospel it's usually thought, and the earlier your evidence for something, that's one of the reasons for taking it more seriously historically. This early Q tradition reports that when John the Baptist was languishing in Herod's jail, suffering from rather embarrassing doubts about who Jesus was, criteria of embarrassment, he sent messengers asking, are you really the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replies with this quotation about the blind receiving sight and the lame walking and so on. It's, it's echoing the messianic prophecies of, say, Isaiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, from Isaiah 35, or you could look at Isaiah 61. In other words, Jesus was implicitly arguing back to John's question like this. Premise one, if someone does X kinds of deeds, these miraculous actions, then they are the Messiah, by the Old Testament criteria and prophecy. Premise two, I am doing X kinds of action. Conclusion, therefore I am indeed the Messiah, the one who is expected. You are, you are right. Um, and he's appealing to the publicly available evidence that John's disciples, at least, not John because he's languishing in jail, but at least John's disciples could report to him, yes, we've seen Jesus doing this. We've talked to the, that lame guy that was on his bed and is now dancing around the place all the time, and so on. Indeed, John had proclaimed Jesus as Messiah in various places. We've got independent uh, attestation of this. And Jesus had identified John as the messenger prophesied by Malachi 3 1. Uh, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And both Matthew and Luke have verses that apply the prophecies of Isaiah 43 to John. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So against that background, you could take quite plausibly, I think, the implication of Jesus' reply to John as extending like this. Premise one, previously established, Jesus is the Messiah. Premise two, the Messiah is God, or is divine. Conclusion, therefore Jesus is God. There's a surprising scholarly consensus today that Jesus really was uh, a healer and an exorcist and someone who did deeds that people around him genuinely considered to be miraculous. Now you see how carefully phrased I was there. It is of course not the case that the majority of historians think that Jesus really worked miracles. But they do concede that all the evidence shows that he did a wide range of things considered miraculous in his society, which was not, as we are sometimes tempted to think, uh, necessarily, oh, well, they were just really gullible back there because, you know, they didn't know much about science, and so everybody would believe in a miracle at the tip of a hat. Um, Well, no, not even amongst the Jewish people. You look at the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees on what kind of miraculous things they were prepared to believe in and so on. Or you look at some of the the Roman or the Greek sceptical philosophers and so on. Indeed, this is a fascinating quote here from John Dominic Crossan who comes from the very liberal Jesus seminar in the States. And he points out that the miracles seem to come into the tradition, the writings about Jesus, later rather than earlier. As, well, some might assume that that was the case. Assume that they come in as creative confirmation rather than original data. That's been the sort of mindset of a lot of theological thinking in this area. John Dominic Crossan of the Jesus Seminar says that would be completely wrong. That would be absolutely the reverse of what is the case. He says the better explanation is just the opposite. Miracles were at the very early stage being washed out of the tradition. And when retained in the tradition, they were being very carefully interpreted. For example, Matthew excludes or shortens Mark's miracle stories that he includes in his gospel. And John's gospel doesn't mention any exorcisms. So Dominic Crossan says, I hold in summary that Jesus as a miracle worker was a very problematic and controversial phenomenon, not only for his enemies, but even for his friends. So far far from it being sort of an easy thing for them to deal with, that they would believe at a drop of a hat, or something that, of course, they just... That just developed legendarily, sort of later, as it were. John Dominic Cross out of the Jesus Seminar thinks the miracle stories appear early and they're so problematical for the writers that they're almost sort of washing them out the later the writings become. 
A point from Greg. Yeah, I just want to be clear on these quotes, and I was not familiar with these statements by Borland Carlson. Mm. Um, because my immediate response is to think that they're acknowledging the legitimacy of the miraculous accounts in the Gospels, but I don't yeah. think they do that. No. Is what they're, I mean, are, what they're saying is, well, look at on historical grounds, which we reject. It's indisputable. There were, Jesus was a healer and exorcist, but we still reject it, even though on historical grounds we would be inclined to accept it. And the miracles were not added, but were part of the original account and taken out. But even when they were part of the original account, they weren't accurate. Is that, is that how we're supposed to read Christ uh, in this case? Yeah, I think, I, so the question is, how are we interpreting what, what people like uh, uh, Crossan and Marcus Borg are saying here? They're, of course, not saying... On historical grounds, we accept that Jesus did genuine miracles. I think what they're saying is that on historical grounds, you can't dispute that Jesus did do things that were taken as miraculous by people around him and his earliest followers. Um, but that these things were so controversial or difficult to deal with that they were gradually washed out of the tradition as time goes on. They, they would say things like, well, of course Jesus did exorcisms in the sense that people considered to be demonised who had some sort of problem, which we would probably interpret as a mental health problem, came to Jesus and he did do things which relieved their symptoms and made them better, but which, of course, wasn't driving out a literal demon because there aren't any such things because we're naturalists. Yeah. yeah. I think the important thing to notice is that Borg and Crossan are in different categories. Um, Borg is a serious New Testament scholar uh, who is uh, liberal, mm. um, but he's not out of left field like Crossan. Right. So a point from Michael Green saying that Dominic Crossan is a bit more on the extreme, on the fringe of New Testament scholarship than uh, Marcus Borg. Or Jochen Jeremias is a Jewish uh, scholar, I believe. Even when strict critical standards have been applied to the miracle stories, a demonstrably historical nucleus remains. Yeah. Yeah, would they have the same attitude towards miracles in the, on the Old Testament? Absolutely. The, the attitude comes from the, the philosophical assumptions. Um, what, I think this, what I think this shows is that you're establishing some data to be dealt with, and you're establishing that data from very sceptical, critical sources. Now, these sources wouldn't interpret that data as pointing to genuine miracles, but the re- clearly, the reason they wouldn't interpret this data as being best explained as Jesus actually healing, etc., is their philosophical assumption that miracles can't happen. But for the reader who doesn't share that assumption, you know, maybe they're agnostic about that, maybe they're not quite so sure about that, um, maybe that the, the argument that you can mount from that data would move them towards thinking um, that the Christian view of Jesus is more plausible. So this is, this is about the establishment of the data to be explained, as it were. This is yeah. in the book too. Yes, yes. So I have a whole chapter on the miracles of Jesus. 
Um, I've mentioned a little bit about the criteria of authenticity also. You could mention sources outside of the, the biblical accounts, so from non-Christians that at least give some indication that, that even uh, non-Christians and enemies of Jesus and so on thought of him as doing, doing strange things. Um, strange things that we have to sort of say, well, how do we explain that? How do we account for this data? Um, this is, uh, again, about the criteria of authenticity, about the, um, you know, the church wouldn't have made up the claim that Jesus was making, doing miracles by being in league with Beelzebub. Um, that clearly was a criticism of Jesus made by his enemies. But that very criticism at least allows that Jesus is doing extraordinary things Again, they don't want to explain it in the Christian way, and so they go for an explanation consistent with their prior philosophical beliefs. Um, But they do give testimony, therefore, that Jesus is doing these rather strange, uh, out-of-the-usual things that goes into establishing our pool of data to be taken of account. Uh, this chart which you've got on the notes is about looking at the, the independent attestation of miracles. And here I think it's quite interesting that uh, if you divide the miracles up into various categories like nature miracles, miracles of healing, miracles of exorcism, um, not only is every category of miracle multiply independently witnessed, but even particular Miracles have multiple independent um, attestation across our, our sources. And this doesn't even go into looking at the, the five usual sources behind the four uh, Gospels. But you've got that data to, to look at on your way through. Um, have we got about five minutes left, is it? Five minutes. We're only up to, to the third, but is there any additional... We had a few as we were going through... Shall I just do a little bit on the resurrection and then that'll leave the, uh, the fourth and the fifth uh, for you to look at later. <laughs> um, this chart shows that the common structure and content of the testimony about Jesus' resurrection from the parallel independent testimonies of very early sources. Yes, sir? Would it be possible just to jump to the final point because I think resurrection is something Yes, you prefer stuff on the miracles? Or, okay. Um, Jesus and contemporary experience. Well, let's have a, a, a vote in the room. Um, yeah. Hands up for sticking with the resurrection. Hands up for looking at, uh, at uh, fulfilled prophecy. Uh, hands up for the last one. Okay. <laughs> I have some nice odds calculations that you're missing here. Um, <laughs> clicking through. Yes, yeah, so I use the, the, the general sort of Habermas minimal facts kind of approach on the resurrection and, um, and try and use uh, a very limited set of sources for the fulfilled prophecy and use multiply attested fulfillments and very uh, cautious odds to get very large numbers. Bum, bum, bum. Contemporary experience... I've got very huge slides on here, but here's, here's the, the range of data that I cover. I kind of split, try and split it up into a range of different categories. Um, 
so you have a very sort of multiple-stranded case for contemporary religious experience, I think. Um, you have the fact of religious experience, Christian experience, combined with those sort of principles of, of intuitive trust and so on that we were talking about earlier a little bit, uh, Richard Swinburne's so-called principle of credulity that says if something seems to you to be the case, you're rational to believe that it is the case in the absence of some good enough reason to think that it's not. And of course, if you, if you didn't follow that principle, then you'd basically end up never believing anything because you'd never believe that any evidence for something being true was reliable and trustworthy until you had evidence and reason to believe that the evidence was reliable and trustworthy. But of course, you wouldn't believe that evidence and reason without it being independently witnessed and so on. Uh, so just given, um, Swinburne would say, the bare fact that you have a certain religious experience, as long as you've got no good reason to think that you were um, you know, off your mind on drugs at the time or um, that there's an overwhelming disproof of the Christian religious view, that in and of itself can be good grounds for believing that your experience is, is genuine. There's also an argument from um, the close analogy between religious experience, religious perception, mystical perception, William Elston calls it, and normal perceptual experiences. There's an argument by analogy whereby the more points of, of relevant analogy between um, the kind of experience, empirical experience that we know to be reliable, the more close points of analogy that you can show with religious experience, and um, in the absence of any relevant points of disanalogy, then the trust that you have in the one kind of everyday experience gets extended to the uh, religious type of experience and also best explanation type arguments um, particularly arguments from the, the, the sort of argument from the transformation of people who really put their faith and trust in Christ and the changes that that wrought in, in people's life the, the sort of the argument from the personal testimony that we're all uh, familiar with but pointing out that you know these kind of stories come from people of all different types and all different cultures across uh, different points in history and so on, looking for what's the, what's the common factor uh, that can most economically explain those transformations other than Christ, is, is sort of trying to explain it away in terms of, oh, that was just wishful thinking, the power of positive thinking or, or such have you. Um, do that, does that really cover uh, the data in the best way? And, and indeed... This is sort of applying philosophical arguments to what you might describe as sort of private experiences, in a sense. And then we're getting into a private experience that sort of shows on the outside through people's transformed characters. And then we're getting into very public evidence, publicly accessible evidence, uh, of um, particularly miraculous things like uh, words of knowledge, sort of charismatic words of knowledge, um, angelic and demonic encounters in the context of, of contemporary exorcisms where the name of Christ is shown to have power to release people from demonic oppression and so on and physical healings in answer to, to prayer and here I, I try and look at evidence uh, for example on the, on the demonic thing try and look at examples of psychologists and psychiatrists who are sceptical about the existence of the demonic who are minded not to believe in these things 
and who have the, the resources to explain away in, in the kind of psychological, psychiatric terms that our culture tends to want to do, that kind of phenomenon, but who, through their own personal experience of being involved in certain case studies, have been forced to change their mind about that. And that, to me, again, it's much more powerful to quote someone converted by their own experience against their own inclinations and in, in, a, in an area where they've got relevant professional expertise to the kind of explanations that we would automatically grab for to undermine the Christian view of that thing, that such people could have their minds changed by their experiences, I think is quite a powerful evidence for the reality of those uh, experiences. Um, so I, I try and um, get data from the most reliable um, sort of sources that you can and not be, uh, not be unduly credulous towards some of these claims. But when you've got such a multi-stranded argument... And you know each of these is its own strand, and then you, you 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 look at say half a dozen miracle cases, and two or three exorcism cases, and four or five words of knowledge, and uh, the cumulative uh, weight of all of these mutually reinforcing arguments for the reality of uh, of contemporary religious engagement with Christ as someone who has an effect on the world here and now. Um, uh, as I said, is a way of moving this argument into, uh, out of history and into the present day uh, uh, for, the, for the reader as well. Grand. Okay, thank you very much, one and all. I'll uh, stick around for a while if you want to chat. <laughs>